Dr. Babbitt and Brass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Studio. My guest on this edition of Fangraph Studio making his fortnightly appearance in the program. This is fortnightly appearance. He's the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest in this program as he does every two weeks. Eric Longenhagen endeavors to analyze all prospects. Of particular note, this week, naturally, naturalmente, naturalement, Eric Longenhagen discusses his top 100 prospect list, which he released on Monday of this week. On Monday, I asked Longenhagen, for example, about shortstop prospects like Willie Adames, Ahmed Rosario, Gliber Torres. Rays prospect, Willie Adames. Mets prospect, Ahmed Rosario. Yankees prospect, Gliber Torres. What is the Goldilocks zone for them? That is the point at which their physical maturation allows them to hit for some power, but is not so significant that it takes them off of shortstop. I pursue that line of thought with Eric Longenhagen. They pursue it to hell and back. We also discussed the Tyler Glasnows and Ian Andersons of the world. Giant, tall, athletic, right-handed pitchers with good breaking balls, perhaps less in the way of command. Much of the talk of the top 100 list is reserved for the second half of the episode. In the first half, various and sundry topics, including but not limited to why Eric Longenhagen would not leave immediately, would not leave a college game immediately that was being started by two college performers, two performers who were nevertheless sitting in the mid to high 80s, why he would not leave that game immediately, why those prospects might be of some interest to him. That is not all, but some of the content, at least in what's to follow, is the sort of program that listeners will enjoy. Ask Longenegan that question as we recorded it. You can't necessarily predict who's going to do that. More yucks like those yucks in what's to follow. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Beautiful lead prospect analyst Eric Longenegan. Live from his home in Tempe, Arizona. Live on tape from his home, at least. And what does it begin? Right now. Interface. Uh, I haven't had the chance to interact with it, really, but uh, it seems... Fine. You type a guy who likes who likes a good interface. Yeah, but I I guess I don't really have my palette for interfaces it is relatively unrefined, and I do less with them than you do. You mean interfaces? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do I interface with? My laptop. I guess like. My PlayStation and stuff. That's kind of all. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's yeah. it. I know that you do uh you do some camera work. I was watching I had cause to watch video. Is there some point during your top one hundred prospects when you say when you expressly direct the reader to look at the video? It might be someone's swing in particular. You say, Look at that video. Uh, I think maybe not on the top 100. Oh, wait. Are you, like, asking if there's a prospect on the top 100 who I'd particularly recommend seeing? No, no, no. no. I'm, say- I'm saying there is a post you've written recently yes. in which you you expressly say, look at the video. It's one of the most – maybe you say it's one of the most entertaining videos I've watched. Oh, no. You – no, it was it was beautifully <laughs> shot video. Um, yeah. It, because it was, what, sunset uh, west of the – 
uh, west of the city or something like this. Yeah, so Blake Perkins, who was the national second-round pick a few drafts ago from um, Verado High School in Buckeye, Arizona, which is uh, – the Phoenix metro area has its surrounding municipalities. Tempe and Scottsdale are east of Phoenix. Mesa is as well. And then like Glendale and Peoria and Surprise are all in Goodyear uh, are to the west of Phoenix proper with Goodyear being the furthest west geographically. But beyond that, there's still stuff. It's just not as developed. So it's very flat. And beyond those municipalities, Buckeye being one of them and one of the more west uh, westerly ones, there's nothing else. It's just desert between there and uh, like Yuma and San Diego. So <laughs> to the horizon, it's just nothing. And so we have particularly nice sunsets here in Arizona. And when you're on the in the West Valley to see it, it's just completely unobstructed by anything man-made. Yeah. And so they look especially nice out that way. And there was just I was it was a couple of years ago I went to see Blake Perkins and shooting his swing just also pointed directly, you know, into one of the more beautiful sunsets that uh I've seen in the nearly 3 years I've lived here and it's just yeah, I just remember <laughs> like uploading that video and being like, you know, this is probably the coolest looking video I've taken yeah. about a baseball player at that time. Blake Perkins, he was a young he was a young player. How how long does it take to get to Buckeye? From my house in Tempe, it's like it's almost an hour. Mm. It's like 45 minutes to an hour, depending on how long, how long will you go to see a guy? Like like a specific game. How long will you go? My you rule go my rule tends to be in general, and there have been exceptions for this. Yeah. That you have to be wherever you are longer than you are in the car for it to be. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. You're talking about the round trip, right? The craziest, the craziest thing I've ever done, and as I'm entering like approaching thirty, I can start to feel like it's probably not good if I were to do this sort of thing anymore. It's different than when you're 24. Um, Drive to Henderson, Nevada. Which is just south of Las Vegas, where the uh, College of Southern Nevada is, mm-hmm. and they have like a, a junior college tournament to start off every year. Like I've driven there early in the morning, and then done like twelve to sixteen hours worth of games, and then driven like right home and gotten home at like three or four a.m. That same day. The same day. The, the, um, mm, That's probably yeah. the dumbest. The dumbest trip I've ever. Uh, I want to tell on. you as a reader. Dumb. As a reader, I I don't necessarily want to think of you having traveled that far. Does that make sense? Like I don't. Sure. I want to de- I want to derive. I want most of my baseball experience essentially to be an exercise in leisure, mm-hmm. and so I want to feel as though you're working from a place. Now I you know I understand. Not every trip you go on, even if it's local, is necessarily convenient to your schedule. Right. A lot of these games take place during dinner, for example. Yeah. Um, when I was in the Northeast. Driving to and from, like, Lakewood and Williamsport, those are, like, four-and-a-half, five-hour round trips sometimes. And, you know, those are the ones where you carve out the time and make sure you're there for BP and uh, infield if they're going to do it. Uh, So, yeah, I think that, like, just a one-off, one-game trip, 
that probably four and a half, five hours round trip total is is probably my my. And if you're traveling that much, right? If you if you so if you say because you were at the game a couple hours beforehand for batting practice and infield, yeah, ideally, yeah. Especially if it's if you're investing that kind of time into like a one off thing to see somebody really important. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's uh, like a potential first round pick or uh, like a a really. a name like a very famous prospect who you want to make sure that you get you get things right. You need coverage. You need every yeah. You want to just try to see every every little detail that you can. Yeah. But uh, when as you know, like if I'm just going to a minor league spring training game or whatever, an AZL game here that takes you know 20 minutes to get to someone I'm going to see a bunch over the next several weeks, and you know you just I just go for the game. <clears throat> Let me ask you about this. I know that this weekend you attended. Um, now, we're going to eventually talk about some of your notes from the top 100 prospect list. Okay. Uh, um, I will say, if I mean, the, you've you've published it, right. and, you know, you've – and for most of the players on there, you've also written extended scouting summaries. So mm-hmm. I, while I believe that it's important, I mean, it's – at some level, it's kind of the centerpiece of what you do for your work on uh, pros, uh, pro prospects, is there's only – there's only so much elaboration uh, we can have on, upon right. it, right? And I have some questions, but it's just you know in itself, you know, if uh, for those listeners who are who are more interested, just I guess you just read it and you say that's what Eric Longenhagen thinks about that player, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you agree with me there, for the sake of ease. If and it sounds else. like it sounds like you would agree with me that uh, the casual reader probably takes far more stock in the top 100 and and weighs it more heavily in their own consciousness than it does on mine. Like, it's probably 2% of the work from oh, this Oh, right, yeah, of course. Although, at some, I mean, at some level, it's also the product. Uh, it you, You're aggregating a lot of your work already. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, it's nice to know, for, for everyone to know who are the top prospects. And, of course, mm-hmm. the tiering system with future value grades is very useful so that I can see that, you know, despite the fact that you have, uh, I don't know, Danby Swanson right after Ahmed Rosario, I also see that they're both 65s. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I say, well, all right, I mean, they're in slightly different order, uh, but um, I'm not too worried about it. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, you went, you went this weekend to see um, Arizona State play Long Beach State. I know this for a fact. Mm-hmm. And I know that starting for the Sun Devils was Eli Lingos or Lingos. Yeah. And Lingos. Lingos, okay. And I know that the pitcher for uh, Long Beach was Darren McGavin. McGavin. Darren McGavin. And I <clears throat> here's here's what I know. No, it wasn't. It's I'm pretty sure it's pronounced McGowan. Uh, Darren McGavin is the late actor Darren McGavin. From we'll get, the, from yeah. the natural and <laughs> okay yeah so wait, how are you saying this Darren's name McGowan Derek Darren McGowan I think so okay well what I know about them well I know that Darren McGowan was quite good last year I believe he was the what the Big West pitcher of the year perhaps right like you you texted me on Friday and said hey these guys are interesting to me statistically yeah. are you going to go see them and I was like yes I will see them. Yeah, well, I, did, I hope I didn't push you to it. I think that you were just – were you going to go anyway? Yeah. 
Yeah, just to, just just to check in. It was a Friday night, so, you know, it was either I could stay home and watch Jill play Zelda, which she's, you know, she's monopolized the TV since that's that's come out, or I could go to a game, so. Okay, so you made your choice. Yeah. So you saw Eli Lingos and Dar- Darren McCowan. Sure. McCoffin. McCowan. McGuffin. It doesn't matter what, what his name is at this point. Here's the point. They've both put up great numbers. I think they're both juniors. Lingos is a junior, perhaps. Yeah. So, yeah. so those are those are two those are two reasons why you might go see them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know just from having done a little bit more research on them, they both top out in the high eighties. Right. Is that where you're at, roughly, too? Yep. Okay, so here's the thing. There are very few major league pitchers, major league starters, certainly, who top out in the high eighties. Okay. So as soon as you see high 80s, do you shut down entirely? And no. If not, I guess – if not, why not? Uh, I think – I just think it's worth considering if there's something more there. Um, I instantly become – I mean like look, th- did I let out a sigh You know, in the bottom of the first when – McGowan came out and was like 86 to 88 with a low (laughs) slot and sort of long arm action. Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. But you hang out and just see if there's anything else there. Um, the, the college pitcher who I'd say was most captivating in this sense was Preston Morrison at TCU, who, uh, is exactly the sort of guy that you sit and watch how masterfully he commands what is on its face mediocre stuff and at least deeply consider the idea that it might work uh, in pro ball at least into the upper levels of the minor leagues, that there's just something sort of different and exceptional there uh, that transcends just, you know, velocity. And we know that there are guys that have done this, right, in the big leagues, whether it's Jamie Moyer as a starter or – uh, you know, some of the funky relievers who, who sit in, in the mid eighties with their fastball. Uh, it's, it's possible. And, you know, I think it's worth sitting there and, and trying to consider whether or not those roles are, uh, are possible for, for pitchers like Lingos and McAllen. I, I thought of one other reason why you might stick around. And I'm curious. I, I, I don't know who has the data. I assume teams have the data. I don't know if we can have the data. So after some labor, we could. Mm-hmm. What's the chance that uh, – I mean, pitchers add – you know, there's every year there's pitchers who are adding velocity. Right. So what would you found – what would you do if in like a – you know, over his last three starts or something, Eli Lingos was hitting – was, you know, sitting 92-93? Or what if you found out after he was drafted? This is – you know, you've, got, you've gotten your look at Eli Lingos. Right. Again, Arizona State left-handed pitcher. You've gotten your look at him. You you have a file for him. You're not mm-hmm. like super impressed probably, but you're like, well, it's effective at this level. That's great. But then now you you find out next year this time, you're doing a list. Say he was you know he was drafted by the Rockies, right? Right. And you you're doing your list and you like start and someone says, oh yeah, Lingos, yeah, he's been in instructs. He's been hitting. He's sitting 93 now, right? Mm-hmm. And so I assume that's part of the reason why you have that file. 
I guess I don't have an appreciation for – I don't understand how often that happens though. How often you get a spike like that? It seems like it's happening more often. <laughs> um, it seems as though there are a few teams who have an ability to – I don't know if they're identifying something in pitching prospects – with quotation marks, you know, around that term and turning them into like capital P prospects. Uh, I don't know if they, if they can identify some sort of inefficiency that they can correct mm-hmm. that's generating more velocity or if, uh, they, they have training programs that are doing it. But I think that's, that's certainly going on. Now, how you deal with that is, uh, from, from where I'm sitting for my job is you try to just see, you know, and it does happen a lot. How you try to look at context. Uh, so there are some pitchers who I've examined during the course of the, the, pro, the team list series where I'm kind of skeptical of those upticks and stuff because of how pitchers were handled. Maybe they only go three or four innings to start. Maybe they pitch every seventh or eighth day instead of every they, hey, fifth hey, day. Hey, maybe they're piggybacking. Sure, yep. Maybe they're piggybacking. I run into that a lot. With like with Astro starters, I feel like or Astro starting prospects. Sure, you, yeah. You, you, a lot of guys you see their names popping up, and then you and then you look into it further, you realize they're piggybacking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's part of it too. Uh, and then there are uh, like let's say it's May sixteenth, mm-hmm. and we're a couple weeks away from the draft, and mm-hmm. Eli Lingos, who's typically eighty-seven to ninety. Is now ninety one, ninety three, with a couple weeks to go before the draft. How do teams handle that? Uh, and I've just in talking with people from different teams uh, and looking at the way they draft and the way they go about acquiring talent. There are some teams who weigh that performance closer to the draft more heavily as a sign of of things to come. And others that are skeptical of it and think that more or less the guy is going to be who he was for the last uh, 18 to 24 months, not the guy he has been for the last two weeks with an extra grade of, of velo. So there yeah. are different ways of looking at that as well. Do you think that the teams can identify players who – right, so the blanket question is, can teams identify players who will put on velocity? And <clears> – <throat> I assume that there's there are types of players. I mean, I I I mean, I read all of your reports basically, right. and I see you cite in particular, you know, it's not surprising, tall, lanky pitchers who could sure. put on more mass. But are there is there is there another sort of pitcher who could who could add velocity in particular if you take into account weighted ball programs? I think there are certain yes. I think yes, generally yes. That there are there are probably. Uh, schools whose resources for developing their pitchers are insufficient when compared to what a major league team can do for a prospect. Uh, so I think that, that yeah, um, resources are definitely part of it. If you're looking at the, the, the pitcher himself, there are some scouts who uh, are – who can look at things from a player development perspective and instead of identifying uh, and just evaluating what's in front of them, think in, a, in an abstract way about what might be if this or that were to be corrected in their opinion 
um, and uh, and what they would do with a player if their team were to acquire him. Right, but they also have to think, think right about the probability. Something. They have to think about the probability that such a correction could be made too, right? That must factor into it. Uh, I think – I'm sure there are some of them that that think that uh, th- that way and there are probably others who maybe don't have that sort of awareness. Yeah. Um, so like an example I'd give is uh, Rod Fridley who's a friend of mine, a former scout who lives here in Arizona – he was the scout who signed Mike Cameron out of high school. And he identified something in Mike Remlinger mechanically when I think Remlinger was, was a pro but uh, with another team uh, that he thought could be corrected and unlock m- more that he thought was in there. And that turned out to be correct. But uh, just like speaking to Rod specifically – He's not the sort of person who would say, oh, but like if our player dev got, you know, like there's a chance that it doesn't work, that he would just say that this guy's delivery is bad. <laughs> I know how to fix it. This would be an interesting throw in for a trade. Um, but I'm sure there are other scouts who have more nuanced ways of thinking about it. And, right. and then, of course, we've seen uh, Travis Sachik wrote a great piece for Monday. Uh, at the sort of organizational level uh, with, regarding the Rays mm-hmm. and how they have identified pitchers. And I'm, I'm, they might not be alone in this regard. I'm merely citing Travis's work. Um, they've identified pitchers who would be, who would benefit from throwing up in the zone and where you might have where you might have say for the sake of ease, we'll say at the 29 other organizations, all of the coaches are saying you have to throw down, you have to throw down, you have to keep the ball down. For whatever reason, that doesn't make sense for Jake Odorizzi, right? You look at who he is, right. his guy, look at his spin rate, and you say he could work up in the zone. The Rays target him in particular. They say Jake Odorizzi um, has the natural ability to such that he could thrive in the top of the zone, and they, they target him because they feel as though with this mechanical change or at least a change in approach that he'll be more valuable to them, the Rays, than he was – with uh, the Royals or the or the right. Brewers before that, yeah, or yeah. maybe maybe not necessarily a mechanical change, but uh, an approach to pitching change, sequencing in different ways. If if you might not have to tell Jake Odorizzi or like Chris Young anything, but hey, throw your fastball up more <laughs> and trust us, and like just see what happens. Like I don't think. Um, you know, I think Chris Young was sort of the first guy for me, at least, where I was like, oh, okay, you can throw 86, but if you can also do this really specific thing, be an effective big league starter. Uh, and I think that I – don't, I don't necessarily think it took a mechanical change to unlock it, but it was just a uh, – it, it was just a coach or an organizational communication issue that uh, was corrected and, you know, unlocked something – Extra. Let me ask you this. Um, this is an unfair question, and I, I'll probably ask more unfair questions before we're done. Good. Long, long and Hagen. Last year, there were 73 qualified pitchers. Okay. okay. Um, 12 of them, <clears throat> so roughly a sixth of them, I guess. 12 of them, uh, according to Baseball and Solution, Info Solutions, uh, threw a fastball at less than 90 miles per hour. Okay. So 
so only about a sixth of them. Um, of that group, you know, in terms of their uh, their FIPS, right? In terms of their FIPS, they were all either close to average or or worse than average, right? They were only they either were slightly above average, mm-hmm. or they were below or they were below average, except for Kyle Hendricks. Kyle Hendricks was so good. Yeah. <laughs> He's really he was good. really good. Yeah, he was really good. Yeah. And he threw, again, according to Baseball Info Solutions, uh, he, threw, he, he threw – his fastball was roughly 88 miles per hour. Okay. He was the fifth slowest among all qualified starters. And yet he was you – could, you could make a, a reasonable argument that if, not, if he's not necessarily the best pitcher uh, that he had, you could argue that he had the best season. You could argue that, but here's the, here's the thing: there are many more pitchers, and of course, and you saw uh, two of them on Friday night. You saw Eli Lingos. You saw Darren McMuffin. Darren. Let me just see if I have this right. Darren. Yeah, there you go. All right, Darren McCarfran. McCarfran is how I think how you say it. He. They both set. They both throw roughly as hard as Kyle Hendricks. Kyle right. Hendricks was. You could again, as you make the case, he was the best major league pitcher last year. Mm-hmm. Eli Lingos and Darren McLaughlin are not the going to be the best. They're not the best major league pitcher right now, right? No. How would you, or could you, if you saw Darren, if you saw Kyle Hendricks pitching in that game you saw Friday night? Or if you went to one of his dumb, cold Dartmouth starts <laughs> in New Hampshire and you hate your life when you're there because it's cold and damp and and the chances of seeing anyone of any consequence are pretty small, right? Uh, could you could, could you see Kyle Hendricks and say, oh, yeah, that's, that guy's probably going to have the best major league season in the near future? <laughs> um, I'd like to think – that I could see the change-up quality and the command, which I do think McCowan has uh, excellent command. Uh, and assuming I don't know a whole lot about Hendricks as a as a draft prospect at Dartmouth, to know that like that change-up was already there, I don't I don't know if it was something that developed in pro ball. I'm sure it did to a degree, but I don't know if sure, you know yeah. it, it could have already been plus there for all I know. I'd like to think that I could have identified the changeup in command as potential separators. Never in a million years would I have watched someone throw 87-91 in a college game and said, yeah, that guy's going to have a season that's, you know, where he's the best pitcher in baseball, arguably. Not, yeah, and it wasn't, never. It, and it wasn't, his, I mean, like he had two, he had one really good full season in the majors before that, and he right. had a good half season in the majors before that. Is it also fair for me to say, that, hey, everyone slow your roll on Kyle Hendricks as some sort of big league ace. We are talking about one season, and while I think he's really good, let's all hold off before we start, like, changing the way we evaluate pitchers because this one guy had a really excellent season this one time. No. It, no well, I don't think that you're necessarily wrong. I think that – I mean, there are signs to suggest that he is going to be fine. He's going to sustain this for a little bit. And Agreed. Listen, he's already produced – Depending on how you calculate a war, somewhere between nine and twelve wins. He has been worth he has been worth so much to the Cubs, especially relative to where he was selected. He's already had a successful career, by and large. Oh, you yeah. see what I'm saying? 
So, sure. like, Kyle Hendricks is a six. The point is, how do you identify that guy? And 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 here's another question, right? So you, we know that you've uh, covered the Phillies with some interest, right? Sure. Like, what – if any pitcher was going to be Kyle Hendricks, at least that I have – that I know in my head, it would probably be Thomas Eshelman, right? Thomas Eshelman is a – is a command guy, right-hander. I actually don't know anything about his secondary pitches. <laughs> um, I think his what his fastball is is low nineties, maybe high eighties. Yeah, 80s. If that yeah, yeah. But he was crazy good, historically for, good, right for Cal State Fullerton. He right. he essentially didn't walk anybody. It was like that crazy year that um, uh, there was a Cubs pitcher. Who was kind of a bad-bodied pitcher, and he uh, wasn't. It, who was the? I'll have to think of it in a little bit. Um, but anyway, he. Uh, I mean, would 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 it be shocking if Thomas Eshelman did what Kyle Hendricks has done? Uh shocking. I think it's incredibly unlikely because I think what Hendricks has done is just – it's just – I'd describe it as like being very far right tail as far as potential outcomes for mm-hmm. Kyle Hendricks. Uh, so the is point is maybe, for, maybe don't you don't worry about it is the point. Like uh, No, yes. I think that that's probably – yes. I think that it happens – uh, all you have to do is look at the guys who over the last like three to five years who have been the best pitchers in baseball over the time and there are just – there are pitchers on there that just weren't high-end prospects at a given time or at the very least had question marks. So it's just for one reason or another, whether it's player development or misevaluation, uh, guys bubble to the surface that hadn't before. And they're really good. And I suppose that that's possible with Eshelman. But as the evaluations stand at, the, at this present second, just, you know, looking at him as with, you know, the processes that flawed though they may be are best for evaluating someone like Thomas Eshelman right now. Uh, they don't seem to indicate a future like that. But yeah. he's got some traits that might uh, tip you off that there's something more there than you can see with, with the naked eye if you just go see him throw six or seven innings in Reading. John Lieber was the pitcher about whom I was thinking. Oh, okay. Remember John Lieber? Yeah, I remember John Lieber. There so was John, a, he was like hyper-control guy. Yeah, like one of those... This That's the sort of pitcher that I think the Reds lefty Amir Garrett might eventually be. Where it's like the stuff is solid, doesn't miss a ton of bats... But is just remarkably durable and throws such a high volume of strikes that he, you know, has some years where he yields like number three starter value and starts. Amir you know, Garrett like makes, already makes some opening day starts. He's like already an old guy. Amir Garrett? Does he have? Yeah, yeah, you know. But like, does he have? You know, we say this about batters with some frequency that he's got old player skills, right? Like batters, like when mm. Ben Grieve came up, maybe he's sort of the oh, best wow, example of this. He was. He had good power, and he always posted high walk totals. But he did, there was nowhere like there was nowhere for him to age. He was all he already played like an old player. Like, do you feel like Amir Amir Garrett has old pitcher skills? Uh, I I think I don't think that the velocity has ticked down. I think that 
the part of the reason that you see some of the old guys in the big leagues is because that as their stuff starts to wane, they find ways to succeed despite that. And mm-hmm. you just you can't necessarily predict who's going to do that. There might be maybe if if you think a guy has aptitude for it, it could be a make you know that nebulous makeup term might be a way that you describe uh, someone ha- having the ability to deal with that. But uh, but yeah, I just think that there's some guys when their stuff goes away that it's over, and other guys find a way to continue to make it work. Generally, I think that would apply to, to good athletes. Garrett's stuff isn't bad, uh, but where like I'd say. Jamie Moyer's stuff towards the end, in my opinion, was probably bad, but he just, you know, found ways to be okay, uh, despite that. Uh, Garrett's not, not the, there where he has to resort to that. I think his stuff is, is pretty solid, but, um, has maybe some of the other pitchers who can pitch into their mid to late thirties have some of the traits he has in that, uh, his delivery looks very easy to repeat. He throws, uh, He's, he's very athletic and I think he's going to throw a high volume of strikes and just be really healthy and eat a ton of innings. I think that sort of pitcher, uh, ages particularly well, like Levon Hernandez and, uh, Ari Dickey and Bartolo Colon, who are, you know, guys who have just still hung around into the late thirties just because you could throw, uh, them at, you know, with Jerome Williams. He's just throw, go out and throw six innings worth of strikes, please. And they can do that. I, that Amir Garrett strikes me as someone who, even in his mid to late thirties, might be able to do that. Do you know that Carlos Silva didn't make it past age thirty one in the majors? No, I didn't. That's that's, that's surprising to me. He was worth two. How did you? Wins. How did you come across Carlos Silva just as I as I was talking? Were you looking into Lieber and like they crossed paths at some point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like Lieber, Radke, um, a bunch of other guys on this list who survived with that, just like a low walk. You know, like a command approach. Yeah. And had some success with it. Um, and I was trying to think about, well, I was trying to think where, where some of those guys were. David Wells was on there. Sure. Um, where, the, where they were in their careers. Like Lieber was kind of a, towards the end of his career. He'd been around for a while. Sure. Jared Weaver's kind of doing that now. Yeah, it might be over for him. But, but if yeah. you saw Jared Weaver's fastball at a college game, if you saw Jared Weaver's fastball at a high school game. Oh, yeah, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I have to think, right? I mean, it's eat. not There's a lot of there are a lot of guys who can throw Jared Weaver now, 82. not Jared Weaver as a as a prospect. Sure, right. But Carlos yeah. Silva is interesting cuz he had um I'm not saying that this is what Amir Garrett does have, but um and we should clarify, Amir Garrett Reds prospect, isn't that right? Yep. Yeah. Um Carlos Silva was an old pitcher. He had old pitcher skills. He didn't strike anyone out. He just he just uh, threw strikes basically. And in some years he like he didn't even have above average ground ball rates. Although in his best years he did. So that's what he did. It worked out until it didn't, and he was done. He was gone. Sorry, Carlos. I feel like Houston has been particularly good at identifying those guys too. Colin McHugh. Um. You think Keiko's one of those guys? Yeah, I do. I mean, he doesn't throw hard. He's one. Of, he was the other best pitcher in that list of twelve uh, of twelve pitchers who who failed to hit ninety miles per hour on average last year. And Houston drafted Eshelman initially. 
Ah, yeah, that's right. Hey, listen. So we're talking about pitcher outbreaks. I want to. Uh, will you tell me briefly about a pitcher you've seen who was a pop-up guy or, or was a pop-up draftee really last year? And I think you just saw him pitch yesterday. Yeah, I did. Yeah, so minor league spring training games have gotten underway. I know it seems late, but this is just when they start. Um, and I went to see Dodgers 2016 second rounder Mitchell White yesterday. I mean, I did not go specifically to see him. I went because the Dodgers and White Sox were hosting the first minor league spring training games of the year. That's why I went. Uh, and Mitchell White just happened to be throwing. But uh, not only – yeah, uh, Mitch White went to Santa Clara and sort of popped up late uh, as a draft prospect, at least as far as uh, my radar was, was concerned. Uh, although I'm sure there were area guys who knew he was good sooner than I did. But, uh, but yeah, he was like the Dodgers' second-round pick last year, and then I first got eyes on him in the AZL, and I think at the time he was like 91, 93, 90, 94, something like that, with, you know, an average curveball, an above-average cutter, and like a fringy changeup. It was it was good. It was, you know, for a second-round pick, I want to say I probably threw like a, like a 45 on him or something like that on the Dodgers list. Like he's... It was a pretty good second round pick, someone who I thought had the, had a good chance to pitch towards the back of a rotation, you know, something approaching a league average starter, which is a great outcome for a late first round pick, let alone a, a second rounder. And then I showed up yesterday and White was 94 to 97 for the entire duration of his outing. Uh, I thought I saw down in the lower, he was like 90, 92 with the cutter, but I could swear I saw a 94 mile an hour cutter yesterday. Um, and not only white, but like a bunch of the the Dodgers on the backfield yesterday were like sitting 93 plus, uh, including a couple guys I'd never heard of. So yeah, it was a fun first day of minor league spring training games. And uh, the best arm I saw yesterday was Mitch White. And I saw Johan Der Mendez and uh, Ariel Harado as well. Oh yeah, I know those guys. Yeah. But so but so White is interesting, right? Though in that he's uh, to some degree, he is an example of this sort of thing we're discussing. Is a college pitcher mm-hmm. who had he 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 has better velocity than like we're talking about with regard to um, Eli Lingos and noted Long Beach State starter Darren McClarfin. <laughs> Dude, if that if a kid. Uh, is listening to this like I'm sorry for Carson. <laughs> I thought you pitched. Um, I thought you pitched admirably. I, I had a yeah, good college. I told you I still have had a good yeah. college career. He was on Team USA over the summer. Like he's good. He's good. You know, it's, That's it's what, just not. I have no problem with it. I just okay, you good. did not. You still haven't given me. Uh, uh, say his name. You now. You say his name. <sighs> yeah, okay, Darren right. McCowan. Yeah. Is how McCown, I would look at it and pronounce it, and I believe it is how the public address uh, guy at Arizona State pronounced it the other night. Okay, I so don't McCown. think that their their that Long Beach State's uh, team page has pronunciation guides. Okay, so I don't know. <clears throat> but th- so he would have been as a co- as a collegiate pitcher, right? It seems as though he was he uh, Mitch White. Was throwing a little bit harder than them. 
but not yeah. so not enough to get him in, into the first round either. Right. I mean, and, part of it was because he he was a redshirt draft eligible redshirt sophomore. Uh, because he missed a year because of Tommy John, which probably factored into his draft position as well. And then his first year back, so a redshirt as a redshirt freshman, was pitching out of the bullpen, so just wasn't seen as often. So I'm sure that that played a, played a role as well. Yeah. Right, but if he's but if he's so we're, what we're seeing here is a is a pitcher, a collegiate who had good college numbers, but. Did not, does not possess, has not possessed until this point, um, any traits which would have forced you, compelled you, Eric Longenigan, to um, regard him as a future average major league starter, right? I mean, you did sure. give him a 45. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, but is, now you have to start thinking about that, I assume. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, but remember, though, Carson, like the the the, the future value grade reflects things, you know, other than the pitcher's projection as, you know, on its own. We are talking about mm-hmm. a guy who had Tommy John. Right. Uh, but yeah, like, at this point, and Walker Bueller, it's the same thing. Uh, the other, another righty in the Dodgers system who had Tommy John, uh, immediate, like, immediately after they, they drafted and signed him, and then when he came back was sitting like 95 to 99. <laughs> He's throwing... Um, he's throwing live batting practice as you and I speak, actually. Um, so yeah, like at what point do you reevaluate? This goes back to the question that you asked at the top of the thing. Like at, with both these guys and anybody like it, at what point do you say, okay, this is real and I will change my, as dumb as it sounds, uh, mm-hmm. list order <laughs> accordingly? Because at any given time, all these lists are, are snapshots. Of where yeah. these guys are. And everybody in baseball knows that at any given time, something bad might occur that causes, you know, the entire profile to unravel, whether it's an injury or something off the field or, uh, like an unexpected phys- physical development that maybe, uh, hurts a player. And conversely, you know, the right coach comes along and unlocks something that no one could have ever predicted would be there. So, you know, the, the lists are just snapshots of where guys are at any given time. And the answer to that initial question, when do you move on? When do you say, okay, I need to update this, uh, is still a question that I'm seeking to answer because, you know, these are the first, this is the first batch of lists that I've done. And I think, uh, logically, reasonably, that the mid, mid-year uh, prospect list updates are that's just not that's not an arbitrary thing. Like I think after half a season, three quarters of a pro season, if Walker Bueller every fifth day is sitting ninety five to ninety nine, then yeah, I think it's time to say that that's who he is, and it's not the ninety ninety three to ninety six that he was uh, in college anymore. Um, so it's just I think people different people. I think you report the things you see, like we have with Mitch White today, and then make your uh, make those evaluations concrete after a longer period of time than just you know yesterday on the backfields. Let me ask you a question about it's now it's two specific players on the top 100, but okay. I think it's a it raises a broader point with regard to right-handed prospect Ian Anderson in the Atlanta mm-hmm. system. 
uh, you say that he is the platonic ideal of a power prep righty. Right. Okay. With regard to Tyler Glasnow, Glasnow, right-handed pitcher in the Pirates system, um, you say that uh, – who are you ranked 26th? You say huge, athletic, hard-throwing righties with good breaking balls are universally loved by scouts, no oh, matter their control. Yes. New, <clears throat> so I assume that th- th- these guys – Fall into a general bin together. They're not the exact. I mean, Glasnow seems like tall, lanky, taller, and lankier, but they have some mm. of the same uh, attributes. Right. So is this is that though? Is that I mean, you, you refer to Anderson. I mean, you come out and say it, he's a platonic ideal, but is that essentially where scouts start if they're looking for like that's where they begin if they're looking uh, for the the ideal profile for for a future major league starting pitcher. Uh, yes. And, uh, yeah, I'd say that I do as well, but I think most scouts in general will look, if you look at a high school player and he has prototypical major league starter build, 6'3", 180 at age 18, is a pretty good place to start, uh, and looks to be physically projectable that he's going to add mass into his 20s, perhaps some velocity comes with that. At the very least, you hope that he adds enough strength into adulthood that uh, he can maintain the velocity he's showing you once a week now every fifth day in pro ball. Um, but yeah, like if you look across Major League Baseball, a large percentage of the uh, successful big league starters, like they look like this. They're well built, six foot two, six foot four, six foot five guys in that range, uh, athletic. And most of them, as amateur players, the primary secondary pitch is a breaking ball of some kind, and they learn to hone a change up and control uh, as through through repetition because they have the requisite athleticism to do both of those things. And Anderson is that guy uh, to a T. Like it's all the things I just described mm-hmm. plus some favorable. Uh, late blooming traits like his fresh arm. He dealt with some weird uh, illness during his senior year of high school that maybe caused some teams to undervalue him uh, from the Northeast. So there's some pitch projection there because when you're playing high school baseball in upstate New York, you probably don't ever want to throw a changeup ever, ever. Uh, so like that, there's he probably hasn't worked very much with the changeup, <laughs> and there's room for projecting on that as well. So yeah, like these are all the things that that uh, that are pretty. And just look, you know, look at first round high school draftees historically, and this is what they look like, and this is what Josh Beckett looked like in high school, and uh, you know, Urban Santana looked like at age eighteen. Like it's just they're all the same guy when you look at them, uh, and some of them, you know, their, their developmental paths are all sort of uh, delta out in different ways, but they all sort of start from the same. Uh, you know the same developmental river, and just sort of break off as they go. So, so with regard to someone like Glasnow, though, right? Yeah. Who who possesses? You say you you discuss all the virtues he does possess. The one he does not is uh, is command, control, or command. Right. He has anytime he's you know made at least uh, you know he's pitched like forty innings at a level, right? Mm-hmm. He's only one time 
recorded a walk rate under 10% d- during that during right. that span <clears throat> which is that's a big part of pitching is not uh-huh. uh walking batters and then also of course that suggests a lack of command as well uh and if in if you throw as hard as he does uh, then maybe you have a greater margin for error on the command, but uh, it's not infinite. Right. And he doesn't throw as hard as some pitchers. Um, so at, some, at a certain point, you, you have to be worried about it. But it seems like he's a type of pitcher, Glasnow, and probably Anderson in his own right, who is going to receive the benefit of the doubt more often than not. Right. And you have to consider the, the – I think you have to consider what if those things that aren't there yet suddenly arrive Mm -hmm. and I think it's maybe this isn't and I'd like to know if you think this is reasonable I think it's more likely that a thing like a better change up and uh, suddenly getting his mechanics together I think that's more likely to occur than it is for someone who maybe already has good control and a good change up to suddenly grow into uh, premium velocity Right, or to or to you know, or to get four inches taller, or right. I mean that's the thing is when you're but, watching. But, go ahead. When you're watching Glasnow pitch, right? Occasionally he'll throw the the platonic version of his pitch. Right? He'll throw that curveball right just below the strike zone for a swinging strike, or he'll throw the fastball on just like the upper fringe of the strike zone, and you say, uh, oh man. Like if he could do that every time, he'd be the he'd be one of the best pitchers. Right, and Glasnow is weird specifically because he is huge, and it's generally accepted that hard throwing pitchers sometimes have a, takes takes them longer to harness you know fastball command, and super tall gangly pitchers also take a little bit longer to harness their fastball command. And Glasnow is both. Uh, so like now, even though he's he's entering his mid twenties, I think it's perfectly reasonable for the pirates to be patient and wait and see what they can make of it before they, you know, move him to the bullpen. It's just getting kind of late in that uh in that time horizon. But now right. the question I have for you though is are we getting to the point because I am showing up on backfields and seeing guys suddenly throwing much harder than I ever anticipated they would. Walker Bueller and Mitchell White were not physically projectable college arms. They were, you know, Mitch White's probably like six two, two oh five and Walker Bueller is 5'11", 170. Like, he's not a big guy. Um, so are we getting to a point now where it seems as though teams can, can in fact, teach what uh, traditionally scouts view as something that's relatively unteachable? And that is, you know, that sort of velocity. Well, um, I think that there's a there's a good analog here with with power on contact too, right? Because I think in the last uh, – in recent years, we've seen certain batters hit for more power than we anticipated as well, right? Right. Um, so the, so <clears throat> in the past, for example, you would look at a player like uh, Jose Ramirez, right? Mm-hmm. Not to say that Jose Ramirez is going to hit a lot of home runs, but his his control of the strike zone has been fantastic as a, um, as a younger player. And so you say, well, well he's not going to hit for power. But then if if you could, if I told you that Jose Ramirez was going to hit twenty home runs, that's you'd be very intrigued, right? Given all of his other skills. 
Yeah. Um, or, I mean, like, you know, I mean, Mookie Betts is a pretty good example of that. If if the Mookie Betts would have been more than a fifth-round signing, likely, if, you know, the, a ghost of scouting future was sitting next to all of the guys watching him at his, whatever, his South Carolina or North Carolina high school, and they were like, uh, or Tennessee high school, mm-hmm. and they're like, see this, this guy out there who you know, who does everything well in the field, like he's also going to hit 30 home runs. He would have been in the first round draft pick immediately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so right, so the same thing for pitchers. Would you rather select uh, Thomas Eshelman, a guy with, you know, historical command at the collegiate level, with the idea that he could add three to five miles per hour, or do you want to select Tyler Glasnow, who, I mean, Tyler Glass is promising, but he does, he has not. Who has all the physical tools, but has not. Well, no, this is that this is wrong. Command is a physical tool to some degree. Yeah, it's I would agree a, with you, and I think that there's, I think there's some biomechanical research, research that shows that like, it's a phys, it's a physical thing. It's not a, like some sort of mental thing. Right. Yeah, it's all it's all. I mean, it's all physical to some degree because it's either. Right. But some of it is some of it is just throwing hard. Which is, you know, that this is this is your muscles working, and then some of it is like whatever the Kevin Euclid skill set was, right? Where, right, because he did not look like an athlete, but he just had freakish hand-eye coordination and, yeah. and just you know ball you know, pitch recognition, um, and that's still physical. It's just a lot of the a lot of it is occurring inside of your brain or in the relationship between your brain and your right. Eyes. It's it's physical, but we can't see it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And it's probably it's probably harder to work out in the, in at least in an explicit way. Like you can make your body bigger by you know going mm-hmm. to the gym. Yeah, I can see how far a guy hits a home run, but I can't see him. You know, I can I do, I do like to think that I can see how early some hitters recognize balls and strikes or off speed pitches by how quickly they relax. There are hitters who you'll see like will relax while a pitch is in mid flight because they know it's not. A strike, or because they've identified like a breaking ball in mid-flight that they can, and they just you can see them relax uh, mm-hmm. before the ball crosses the plate. Um, but, yeah, that uh, seems to have some value. Although, I mean, I, I, it's probably not the sort of thing that you about you know like kill the bug. I mean, maybe you're t- making note of it, but there's not a sort of um, like shared pool of information regarding that. Like, oh, like. How long did it take Aloy Jimenez to give up on that breaking ball you saw? Oh yeah, right. I don't think that's that's not something you can like swap back and forth. Mm. So the so the point is, is it more likely that someone with a glass nose profile, broadly speaking, uh, that he acquires command, or that someone with Thomas Eshelman's profile, broadly speaking, adds three to five miles per hour? Historically, you would always go with glass now, right? Right. You would yeah. say there's a much higher probability. Yeah, it's not eval- 100%. I would evaluate Glasnow's athleticism and say how likely – how what kind of athlete is this kid? How likely do I think he is to develop the sort of things he needs to develop in order to to succeed? And I would right. think that, And you'd yeah. say – and you'd sit in – you'd say if I had to I'd take either him or Thomas Eshelman who has elite command but very little physical projection, you'd say there's not – yeah, I'm going to pick Glasnow every time. Yeah, I would. Right. But – you're, what you're asking is, because of recent developments in player development, 
in player development. And you've mentioned this uh, specifically with regard to the Yankees. They right. seem to have just a machine that can give, what, Chad Green, three... Jordan Montgomery. Right. Jordan, who was just kind of like a boilerplate college pitcher, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, just sort of like a funky lefty college pitcher who ate a bunch of innings at a big school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think suddenly... he was actually my Sestulis guy for the 2016 list, maybe. Well, you did a good job. Well... And do but a good it had job. nothing to do with it had nothing to do with what ultimately made him good. I think, but, um, right? But was, at the, but that's what that's what uh, continue because you're on a on a line of thought that I don't want to interrupt with my. Well, no, maybe Jordan Montgomery makes sense. Maybe you say, "Oh man, he's really performed." Yes, exactly. That's where that's where I think it's. That's why I, I think there are people who throughout the the team list process in the comments have been like, "Why is the Cato stuff on here if it's not?" Like really impacting your evaluations at all, but it it does it does force you because and this will let people give people a glimpse inside the thing. But like when I submit the lists and they're done, Chris Mitchell looks at them and will say, "Here are a bunch of guys that Cato likes that you don't have anything on," and then that causes me to go like check with some people on, "Hey, who's this, like what's up with this guy?" And there are times when I've added those guys into like the 40 – they typically go into the honorable mentions if they go anywhere at all. But there are times like when I've added guys into the 40 and maybe a time or two when I've like put guys on that are that are 45s on the list because of it. And I think that that's – I think identifying statistical trends and making sure that you're not missing anybody because you're ignoring them is a is good practice for – and I think teams do it. Uh, scouts themselves might not do it, but teams certainly do it, and we try to do that here as well. All right, well, let, I, we're, we're we're approaching the hour mark here, um, and I would not like to keep you forever. However, okay. uh, there is another point you make, and uh, it it that that, it, that it, uh, arises and emerges as a theme on the top 100 prospect list, and I think that it's characterized most succinctly by you when you're discussing Willie Adamas. Yep, Adamus, who Billy I Adamus, really like. Shortstop prospect for the Tampa Bay Rays. Mm-hmm. Um, you you describe him immediately as barrel-chested, uh, and then you say someone like him might or, ordinarily have to move off shortstop given his build, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Later on in that in the, the summary regarding Adamus, you say if his body matures in the Goldilocks zone, and when he's 25 he's added power but simultaneously retained the physical agility to – to stay at shortstop, he'll be among the growing collection of uber shortstops. Now, I think that with re- Adamus is the only one, um, is the only player with whom you expressly cite this uh, idea of the Goldilocks zone. But that this idea of the sweet spot in in physical maturation, right, is one that's recurring. You, you I mean, even the first shortstop on the list, Ahmed, uh, Ahmed Rosario. Um, am I saying that correctly? You say it. Yep. Okay. Ahmed Rosario. Yeah. Uh, you say he's an, uh, an exceptional athlete who's become more explosive and coordinated as his body's matured. Yep. He projects as a plus defender at shortstop. Um, but you, so you have this. There is this uh, tension between physical maturation, which helps, which typically helps with power. Typically, not always, but typically helps with power. Sure. Yep. But at the same time. Um, an excess of, of uh, you know mass 
would make a player slower and he would be forced then to move to second or to second or third um but there is there it seems to be that there is a certain type of body or is a certain small collection of bodies which <clears throat> can put on mass uh which can grow stronger Mm-hmm. but which might still retain the same sort of athleticism necessary to play the elite position at shortstop, or and this happens in the outfield too. I think it, it came yes. up maybe with Alex Alex Verdugo with the Dodgers. Yep, I'd agree. Is with that, that right? Yep. Yeah, where you say, mm, like he did, he did gain, he did become more physically mature, but now because of it, like he's probably going to have to move to a corner. Um, and I'm wondering, I guess, could you maybe expand upon? the process you use to delineate for yourself the difference between those guys who are putting on uh, – who are entering the – who are able to reside in the Goldilocks zone and those who are going to have to move off the elite defensive position. Sure, yeah. I think uh, it, you have to – man, ideally you like to see like the kids' parents, what, what they look like. Uh, <laughs> That's true. It's true, Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, and also as a, as an as an aside to this, is Troy Tulowitzki the sort of i uh, the is he the platonic ideal of this sort of? thing? I think you can look at, yeah, I think Tulo's on the list. I think Xander Bogarts is probably on the list. Carlos Correa and Corey Seager are, and I suppose Manny Machado are mm-hmm. there now uh, and sort of exist in that in that sort of place early in their careers, the way Alex Rodriguez did, where. You think it probably works for a while before a move ultimately to third base, like Cal Ripken Jr. Uh, and then you have like the – so yeah, you have like the Tulos and the Xander Bogarts types who are just – they're just there. And you think they're probably going to exist there and pass there for the duration of their careers because they're not going to get uh, all that much bigger. And then I'd say Machado – Correa and Seeger are sort of that A-Rod archetype where they'll probably, as they age into their mid to late 20s, will grow off of shortstop then, but play there for a while. And then you have your Brandon Crawford, Francisco Lindor, Addison Russell types where uh, the cement is more or less dry on the body. This is probably what they're going to look like when they're 30 years old and will stay there for the duration of their careers. And then you have the uh, Adeni Hecavaria Alcides Escobar, Alexi Ramirez body type, um, and then probably the Jose Iglesias and Freddie Galvis body types, which are a little bit more compact, but similarly agile, where you just never ever worry about it at all. Um, because and those guys are like the, those are like the classic shortstops. Yes, of, you Didi Gregorius, I mean, I'd say, sort of fits in that in that as well. Right, and these, those are typically guys that you never, of whom you never expected much in the way of offense, but who right. physically you could say. These guys will be shortstops until they die, essentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, and I've brought this up in some of the writing as well, that we're at a point now with batted ball data where you can probably fudge guys over at shortstop for longer than they otherwise would be. Yeah. But there's still a type, though. Oh yeah. And so how do you know that? So maybe Willie Adamas benefits from that, but like, are the, what are the, are the indicators? Like, what you say, Rosario will probably stay at shortstop. How do you know that? Oh, okay. Well, so his, he physically he is more narrow, um, mm-hmm. 
than Adamas, who is more, a little bit more, I don't want to say rotund. He's not like Pablo Sandoval or anything like that, but he's thicker. You just look for guys who have traits that would indicate a lot of physical growth. Broad shoulders, a high, uh, big butt. Those guys, like guys with big butts and thighs typically, uh, tend to add a lot of weight into their, into their twenties. Whereas, you know, if, if I, uh, Hegevaria, Alcides Escobar and Alexi Ramirez are of a certain body type, right? Would you agree that they all have similar body types to look at them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, like Rosario is closer to that, um, maybe not quite as as thin because I do think there's some more power in there. Uh, J.P. Crawford is that. That's the sort of body he has. Ah, uh, right, 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 right. Um, but, it's like a sinewy. It's still strong, but it, right. there's not you're not gonna there's not really room for. More mass. And Adamus, I'd say, is more in the Tulowitzki uh, sort of mold, where it's uh, it's going to be it's going to be a big body, and it's about trying to evaluate whether he has enough innate explosion to uh, overcome it, or if he just ends up moving to to second or third at some point. And different people think different things, but I'm relatively optimistic, and part of that. Is honestly because you know you look at the team he plays for and uh, and the way they've deployed shortstops in recent history, and I kind of I tend to think that Adamus is fits that mold. On your top 100 list, this will be the last thing about which I harass you. Your top 100 list, you have five catchers: Jorge Alfaro, number 32; oh, Francisco okay. Mejia, 37; Cleveland prospect uh, Carson Kelly, 81. Francisco, Baltimore, 85. Zach Collins, Chicago, 94. I will say that from my – when I'm thinking about prospects, catcher is always the most frightening to the point – not frightening, but it poses the most challenges because if a catcher does not stay at the position, if he proves that he's unable to stay at the position, then there's nowhere for him to go really except first base in most cases. Right. And that's a huge swing. It's like a, you know, it's like a twenty-run swing or something like that. Like two yeah, wins. Yeah, it's huge. It could even be more. It could even be more. Maybe it's more like closer to three wins. The point is that it's 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 a long way down. It is. Um, and so tell me. I apologize that somebody is either sawing something or vacuuming very loudly. <laughs> no, oh, it's my, one of my neighbors. So tell me what. Tell me. Tell me how you deal with that when you are evaluating catchers. Um, and maybe you could also maybe bring in Zach Collins as an example because you suggest right. that maybe he's not a lock to stay a catcher. Yeah, of the guys that you listed, only Carson Kelly is a, like a slam dunk good defensive catcher. Mm. Alfaro has elite arm strength and is an incredible athlete. Uh, and has remedied some of the receiving and like other finer defensive issues that had plagued him for a while. And I, if I were, you know, ranking them all on likelihood to stay back there, he'd be number two behind Kelly, followed by Mejia, another elite arm strength guy, uh, and Cisco, who is m- more of a refined receiver with a fringy arm. And then Collins, who I doubt stays at catcher. Uh, area scouts were a little bit more optimistic than I was, but I saw him in the fall league at the end of a long 
uh, summer for him when he was probably exhausted. Uh, and so that factored in as well. Just my, my own uncertainty factors mm-hmm. in sometimes just does. Um, so I think it's hard. Uh, you have to just like shortstop. There are a lot of very specific physical components and arguably more, I guess if you're sitting here thinking about it, because you do have to have the requisite arm strength. You do have to have the lateral quickness and, um, the, the receiving ability that the hands need to be good. They have to be soft, ideally, um, dealing with balls in the dirt effectively. And it's like a long, very specific list of things that you have to do. And very few big league catchers check all the boxes because it's just, you know, there are a lot of them. <laughs> um, and then there's like a mental aspect of it too, which is, you know, I think probably from my perspective, almost impossible to evaluate the, the pitch calling and stuff like that. Uh, which Collins is also behind on because he was a college catcher and college coaches call games. Uh, so the way it factors in for me is there's not necessarily like a very specific objective way of doing it. I just try to get a feel for how likely I think a guy is to stay back there. And you're right. Uh, if he moves out from behind the plate, it's usually over to first base. Um, and it's just factored in more or less to the risk profile uh, than, than anything else. Uh, the same way you would factor in uh, like injuries and... Um, and maybe make up stuff or just, uh, the risk that's created by a, a distance, a great distance from, uh, the low minors to the majors. Like it's all just an element of risk with Mejia and Collins. There's just risk that eventually they're not seen as catchers anymore. It's just, you know, teams give up. Um, and it's sort of nebulous and, and subjective to be honest with you. Yeah, and it's and it, but it's. I assume it's. It just makes it so difficult because, um, because just it's a, the risk associated with it is, you know, is is enormous. If a guy is not right. going to ultimately show again, like you mentioned, you know, the shortstop, like he can move over to third or second. That's that is a gentle, that is a gentle little slide across, you know, to second right. or third, and it does it does not. Uh, doesn't um, lead to a huge deficit in terms of runs, but the move of the catcher is stuff. I mean, <clears throat> and the other thing is too, right? If a guy is so advanced offensively, and like Bryce Harper is one example of this, but there are many, you know, from history, Carlos Delgado was an example of this. If a guy is too advanced offensively, a team is more or less incentivized to take him off catcher because whatever time he would be. It would be um, invested it, in him learning catcher. Like he could be on the major league team, hitting at a major league level at that point. Right, and once he's in the big leagues, he's not only catching a hundred games a year. You know, if Bryce Harper were still catching, he he. I mean, it'd be kind of fun, but um, you know, he'd only be playing realistically a hundred, hundred and ten, maybe max a hundred and twenty games a year instead of you know running him out there every day if you can if he's healthy. And the right. physical toll that catching takes on the body probably has an impact on the sort of offensive output these guys are are able to produce as well. Um, right, and yeah, I mean, so that's yeah. why, like, I, I suppose that's like why Buster Posey is so exceptional, right? Amazing, 
Amazing. Because he can, they can put him at first. He's a talented hitter. You know, he played, he played all, he played all nine positions at Florida State. Right, yeah. Yeah, so like, we're talking about an exceptional athlete there too. You know what's interesting? I live in uh, Maine, you know that. Yeah. A guy who lives right across the street from me was a relief pitcher at Florida State. Oh, yeah? Do you know how, do you know how many people in Maine were relief pitchers at Florida State? Probably just that guy, right? I think just that guy. And guess guess who – well, he was teammates with Buster Posey. But more importantly, guess which player he was teammates with? Sherman Johnson. Sherman Johnson. <laughs> Do you think that when he told me he played at Florida State, I asked him first about Buster Posey or Sherman Johnson? Oh, I know. I, I'm pretty sure I know who he is. Are there any good Sherman Johnson stories? Not that I know. I think I think Wait, he was – so you asked him about Sherman Johnson, but you don't you, – you didn't get anything out of him? I think he was older than Sherman Johnson. Like okay. he was a junior maybe when Sherman Johnson was a freshman or something like that. Or he was like a senior when Sherman Johnson was a freshman. Okay. So it probably – I think it didn't click. I, th- I, got the, I gathered that – I gathered that he maybe like grew out of baseball a little bit if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Like it's, it's probably like – it's probably like the most – I mean Sherman Johnson like in, in the grand scheme of things has been wildly successful – for even for a collegiate baseball player, right? Yeah. Like he's made it to AAA. That's really good. He was drafted from, what, in like the sometime after the tenth round. So yeah, yeah, I mean the fact that he's that we're talking about him at all is like he's had a great pro career already. Right, but for for most college players, like you're like oh. I mean at a certain point you probably realize that your chances of playing in the majors are pretty low. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like oh like I like I was a really good baseball player for a while. I guess I'll do I'll do another thing now, and I'll you know I'll pursue that. So I assume for certain people it's like yeah, play college baseball is fun, right? Yeah, for yeah. some people it's just like being on the crew team or playing college right. rugby. Yeah, yeah. I would assume for like a righty one out guy to, in particular, he'd be like yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. So actually, I just saw him. Uh, you know, we're getting a lot of snow right now. Yeah, today's my mom's birthday. I talked to her earlier, and she said, oh, I don't know, like a foot of snow. <laughs> yeah. Trying yeah. to know. Yeah, I saw him across the street. I mean, he he lived in Florida, obviously. I don't know yeah. where he's from precisely, but I gather he's from the south somewhere. I assume that uh, this is – she's from Florida. Foot of snow is not fun. Not to say it's fun for anybody, but if you're born in the northeast, at least you feel like you have some sort of obligation to contend with it because that's where you came out of your mom, you know? Yeah, but if you're but if you're if you're from Florida and you're here, you're like, oh, I made a choice. I made a choice to be here. I enjoy the what feels like an extra bit of silence as the snow is falling. Like you know how it's just sort of a little extra quiet outside. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, um, but after that, it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. Do you think you'll ever tire of baseball? Tire of baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Then what? Yeah, well, it's cyclical though too, because there are some days certainly like, I feel like late August in particular, mid late August. I, I don't really like the sport then. Okay. It's before any sort of meaningful playoff runs. It's after the the, the trade deadline. <clears throat> A bunch of teams are out of it already, though. You know, so at the major league level, that's less interesting. Also, minor league seasons basically. Yeah, it's basically done at that point. 
and around then. So that's kind of a that's kind of a weak point in the calendar. There's also a certain Agreed. point like we'll have to get you out on the on the showcase circuit next summer. Is that happening around then? Yeah, yeah, late summer area codes and uh, you know, like the perfect game classic or whatever in San Diego. I don't know what it's mm-hmm. called. Something America something. <laughs> hey, I was following on whatever PBR is. That's not a prep uh, baseball report. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, it's not a drink that <laughs> like me can be seen <laughs> holding. <laughs> um, is that what they're calling you now? <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> Trying to, you know, it's hard, you know, keeping in touch with the uh, social zeitgeist. The lingual, yeah. yeah. So I'll have to make sure I tell Jill. <laughs> they were, they were, I saw, uh, they were producing, uh, they were publishing for one of the New England, you know, like winter showcases or something. Uh, they were publishing exit exit velocities on uh, batted balls. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool too. Um, I think that one of the goals, uh, and as that stuff's becoming more publicly available, there's a, you know, a lot of sort of that measurable stuff. I think it'd be pretty interesting to try to compile that and that data and start working with it in meaningful ways. I don't think that it's it's something that you and I will have to have a pretty long conversation about, the best way to go about it. We might not have meaningful data in that regard for another, you know, seven to ten years mm-hmm. uh, before, before we can start, like, trying to find correlations between stuff that we think is meaningful. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, there were some of those uh, that I'd – it's probably not the best way to describe them, but it's it's apt, I think. The, they're more or less draft combines that MLB is sponsoring that have gone on around the country – that I think would be interesting to sort of collect that data from and and let it barbecue and you know when the kids from this from this class hit the big leagues take a look and see what uh, what random physical measurables mattered and which ones uh, haven't. I'm sure there. Yeah, that's that what I was thinking. The the idea of the of the draft combine. The uh, there is that there's that you're trying to represent some sort of. Um, useful physical skill sure. with numbers, and I think that that would, it's happened yeah, in the NFL already, right? Football Outsiders has done some interesting work on uh, clustering draft eligible receivers based on their uh, like their BMI and their height, and finding out what body types uh, for receivers are are perhaps particularly effective. You can see uh, it lets you see like where clusters of, of different receiver types physically sort of lie on an X and Y axis. And then you can see also that like Calvin Johnson is a complete and total freak that has no other physical com- uh, like comparable in the history of football. Uh, they've done really? stuff. Is he, he's that different, huh? Yeah. It was like, he was like six foot seven, two thirty five, ran a four, four, one in somebody else's cleats at the combine. Cause he didn't bring his own from the hotel or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, what about, I have to assume that Randy Moss, is uh, unusual for that, but yep, I'd agree, but probably not uh, not quite that heavy. I'd have to look at the. I have my own that I kept, like I kept their initial research into it. I don't necessarily think they found anything meaningful with it. Um, it was just sort of interesting to look at, but I've, I think I've kept my own that I've updated hmm. each draft. For the Wait, last did Calvin Johnson years. retire? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's just done with football, huh? 
He's just done. Well, good for him, I guess. Yeah, I'd say. Probably. I mean, he was good up to the end, right? He was – I think he's still good. It's just – you know, it's one of those situations the same way with like Barry Sanders did the same thing where you just look up and say, hey, you know, I, I've i made money. I value my health going forward more than the, you know, the marginal $10 million I could probably make every year playing playing out the rest of my career on one-year deals for wide receiver thirsty teams. And so I'm done, you know. I think that's yeah. fine. Gil Mesh did it. Calvin Johnson did it. A bunch of NFL players have done it lately. Patrick Willis, you know. But yeah, I think that that um, the NFL, the NFL draft culture has some uh, aspects to it that uh, appeal to me that I that I don't think exist in in baseball draft culture, mm-hmm. and that I think would be interested in uh, in diving into. It's just going to take. It's going to take a lot of work. <laughs> hey. Hey. What? Hey. What? You fulfilled your obligation, buddy. All right. Good. I'm going Thank to go you, to the Orioles list now. Yeah. It's bad. <laughs> is, uh, is the other – who's their catcher? Who's their backup catcher? <laughs> the or- On the big league club? I yeah. don't think I have another catcher on my follow list here, dude. Oh, who's their who's their who's their real catcher? Who's who plays on that team? Talk about the Baltimore Orioles. I don't think are they do they have a catcher this year? I'm pretty sure that they just have a, go a whole a mess of like first first baseman and out and corner outfielders. Yeah, haven't they a, haven't they worked that out with MLB strategy. where it's just going to be? If you didn't feel the catcher, could you just throw the ball at the umpire? The umpire and just have his like cup block it. Yeah. Would he have to he get would, out of the way? Would you do that in like a full count situation? Like if there are two outs and a full count? Yeah, just get rid of the catcher. Um, Tie game, full count, two outs. You want to? Yeah, you want to have another loaded. outfielder. <laughs> you just like put an extra outfielder or something. I think they wouldn't like it. No, I think Corbin Joseph, right, would be. Corbin, jo- well, Caleb and, and Joseph Welling, is the catcher. Uh, excuse me, yeah, Caleb Joseph. So, but it's actually Welling, Corbin Joseph about. Castillo. Yeah, uh, Corbin Joseph is the one about about whom I'm thinking though. Still in the Orioles system. Still, he's a very strong chance okay. of being my dude. For you, is he still rookie eligible? I think so. Maybe he's he has seven plate appearances in the majors okay, as he enters yeah, his he age 28 season. Oh, I All like right, him. Well, you can have him. Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, oh, he's we'll Caleb see. Joseph's brother. Yeah, they're, bro- they're brothers. They're Joseph's. Have you been watching The Man in the High Castle? No. Good? Oh, yeah, good. Oh, yeah, good. Oh, yeah, good. He, he looks like one of the um, one of the characters in it, Corbin Joseph does. All right. Well, one of the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got a little bit of a good No, I hair. mean, I don't think so, but he just looks like the actor that plays one of the main characters. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he's a nice guy. It's on Amazon Prime if anybody's interested in it. It's a very ambitious, ambitious show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jonah Heim is he on? Is he on there somewhere? Yeah, he's sort of on the periphery. He's a catcher that I included last year, and uh, but that's like I said, it's hard to know with these catchers. I'll have, it'll be Cisco, Cody Sedlock, and then after that, it's kind of like eh, probably Keegan Aiken. 
Oh, wait, no. Haim was traded to Tampa Bay. I oh, take it back. Right. Yeah. Well, make sure you make note of that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, Haim was on my list last year. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right, dude. Okay. Okay. We did okay. It. Yeah, it was fun. All right, that has been... Uh, I already said thank you. You said thank you. You said, I said that has been right. Fled Prospect Analyst Eric Longenig, and I'm Carson Testuli. Hi, everybody. This has been Fangraphs Audio.